0: After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now, when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece. And he stayed three months. When the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria. He decided to return through Macedonia. And Soprida of Berea accompanied him to Asia also Aristarchus, and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them in Troas, where we stayed seven days. And now a message for my sponsors. Okay, so before we even dig in, isn't it true these are the kind of verses you read quickly through? You kind of go, yeah, blah, 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 someone I'm never going to meet again, sube, whatever, something ish, something cuss, cuss, wait a minute, cuss, that's not supposed to be good. You know, and you get all these is and then a disease. And then you kind of read through, and then someday you're going to stand in heaven, and when you're going to stand in heaven, you're going to meet Trophimus. And you'll be like, the one guy. Now, if you are, um, if you run into him and you don't know, and he says, hi, I'm Famous, and you say, who is he? And he says, what church do you go to? Tell him that you went to the Church of England. But if you did tell, if you say, I do know who you are, then tell him you went to Calvary Chapel. Anyway, so with that said, here's the most amazing thing. It's these kind of verses we read through so quickly, and then we really don't even get what's being said. So as a result of that, we kind of blah, 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 forgetting the fact that every verse in Scripture was intentional. God writes these beautiful, there's all these things he could write about, all kinds of things that people would have made some form of religion out of. Imagine if they wrote Paul's dietary habits. People would be like, I'm holy, I'm eating like Paul. I mean, some people think they're eating holy because they're eating bugs, right? And honey. And some people say, well, that's kind of really close to the word for carob, you know? So I go vegan, and now I'm like John the Baptist. Well, in, in, in all of that, the reason I say that is all the things that God could have said. John says, by the way, John, the writer of the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in Revelation says, well, there were so many other things that Jesus did. But when John writes John, he says, but these things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing in him, you would have life in his name. There's a specific agenda John actually writes, First John, five chapters, and he says, these things that we have seen and heard, we write to you that you actually may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus the Christ. These things we write to you that your joy may be full. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, I write these things to children, because that you would not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation, not for our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. Chapter 2 also says, I write these about these things, that, those that are trying to deceive you. He says, I write about those who know this Jesus Christ, that you may know, that you may know, that you know that you you have eternal life. John says, if I could have my way, just reading my five-chapter book, you would walk out of there full of joy, absolutely, having fellowship with me, and therefore, because my fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus the Christ, you'd have fellowship too. And then with all of that, that you would not live in a a state of sin anymore. That you would not be deceived by those who are trying to deceive you. And that you would know, that you know, that you know, that you know that you have eternal life. And I think John knows what he's talking about. And the reason I said that is that there's no scripture in the Bible that is unintentional. And we know that intellectually, we know that all scriptures breathed by God, useful for correcting and teaching and training in righteousness, that the man and woman of God would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. First our second Timothy three sixteen has told us that. And we go, Yeah, 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 I know that. And then we go to these verses and we go, blah, 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 blah. Get me to something fun. Does he get beat anywhere? Does he run anywhere? Does someone try to kill him somewhere? I want some action. Even for people who watch Jane Austen films, where no action actually happens. So, and the reason I say that, not to pick on those of you, I do watch those movies with my wife, but I do pretend that they're getting run over by monster trucks. It makes me smile in the middle of it. Um, now you know my secret. So we're watching it, and I'm smiling. Right through the tea party. And some guy jumps up. Anyways, sorry. Enough of my my, my fantasies. Now, in our text, though, this is where we're at. And so let's pray, now that we've got our text and have already gotten better before you. God, I just pray that your word would come alive, that you would rampantly and radically speak to us tonight, that we'd have so much fun in your word. God, it is so good to be back. It is so wonderful to see faces that I love and pray for so often, and to celebrate you as our King of Kings, as our Lord of Lords, is our Master, as our everything, as our Lord God Almighty. And I pray tonight, God, that in these verses that we would be radically transformed, that we would be radically informed, that we'd be radically conformed to you. And so, God, I just pray that you would do your work now, please, have your way. Thank you for your infinite love for us. Thank you for your wonderful, wonderful care for us. And thank you for the way, God, that you make your presence known. So speak to each one of us individually right where we need to hear you. And in that, God, corporately as well, that we as a body, as a family could embrace you and love you and know you and want you more. So, God, I just praise you now. And that your scripture come alive. You've promised it's alive, sharper than any double edged sword, able to divide joints and marrow, soul and spirit. Do that. Discern the intent and thoughts of our heart. God, do all of the things you intend. And in this time, God, don't leave us alone, but may we truly intimize with you now. As I commit this to you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. would say tonight, as it would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true, because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Well, not that long ago, back in chapter thirteen, by the way, there were a group of guys praying right up here. This is, by the way, Syria Antioch. That's why I have this, by the way. It isn't because I'm going to hit you if you think you're nodding off. Um, I have other things for that. All right, um, here in this, here in this area, here there were a group of people, and the camera crew has moved. I mean, the beginning of this book, if you think about it, really takes place for the most part here. 120 miles south in the area of Jerusalem. And in that area of Jerusalem, the, you know, the Holy Spirit comes upon 120 guys, roughly 120 men and women that are praying. They run out. They start speaking in languages that they don't personally know, but it seems like everybody else does. And it's interesting. The people have been gathered as if it were a United Nations gathering at one of the three required feasts of every able-bodied Jewish man known as Shavuot or Pentecost. Now, as they're there, it is the feast of the first great harvest. And that's what they're looking for. They come with a little bit of their of their grain. They pick the best of the best because the idea is, as this is, may the rest of the harvest be as well. And that was the prayer. As this is, may the rest of the harvest be as well. Now, with that, these men speak, and then the people around them start speaking. Now, every person that is sort of organized or trained or educated knows how to speak the language Koine Greek. It's a common man's Greek. So they can speak to each other. It's the only time since the Tower of Babel, or since, that everyone actually could speak to each other as well as speak their own native tongue. Interesting as it is. And God waited for that. He waited till the Romans paved the roads. So the Babylonians gave us a universal mindset. We stopped thinking about our little tribal area, but we thought much more globally. So the Babylonians gave us a global mindset. The Greeks gave us a single language. And then the Romans paved the roads and gave us ports so that when Jesus did come and the gospel could get preached, it could get preached in one language to the whole world. And the Romans even paved our roads to get us there. Praise God how he works. Now, with all of that, the people speak to each other and they say, how is it that we hear each other speak, hear them speak in our own language? And they look at the guys and they look like, and I don't know where it is in, in England or Europe, where you kind of just, and I, it's probably best you don't say, because there's probably someone from our fellowship from there. But, uh, and I don't have a pers- place in mind, so it isn't like I'm not going to look at anyone when I say that. Um, but you know, the kind of place that's traditionally three-toothed, uneducated, you know, people just trying to figure it out. There's places like that in America as well. Well, that's kind of the idea of the Galilean. Matter of fact, the way that they spoke was so poor that they were not allowed to speak a benediction in any of the 365 uh, synagogues that were in Jerusalem alone because they slaughtered the language. And they thought that that was blasphemy to have such a person try to say the benediction. Now, in America, there are some people, and I don't want to insult anyone there, but there are certain people and they can't talk like this. And they got a few teeth. And my critter, And that kind of thing. And it's like you just see, you know, some place where, like here, where, ma- imagine trying to get one of those guys to Oxford and have them sort of read for the Archbishop of Canterbury somewhere, you know. And they're just like, well, okay, let's see. Who am I? And they're just like, sit down. You, just, you should just, sit down and be quiet. And, and that's kind of the idea. And again, I don't mean to insult anyone, but that was the view of Galileans. Now imagine what it's like when you have a batch of these guys popping out of, a, of whatever particular place this upper room leads to, and they start speaking all these languages. And how is it that we hear them speak in our languages? I mean, we hear them speak in languages that are traditionally Roman, that are Romantic, that are Middle Eastern and Semitic. And then one person even says, how is it that we even hear them speak Hebrew? Which is interesting, because, well, that's the language they already spoke. <laughs> So that means one guy, everyone's speaking in tongues, and one guy looks and he just isn't speaking in tongues. So he praises God in the language he has. Praise God. But you know why that's important? Because there are some people that didn't speak another language other than that, and they needed to hear it too. Well, with that then, God brings about, as one man stands up to speak, Peter, and he preaches this beautiful message, which, by the way, God makes clear. He gives us the excerpts because it says, with many other words. So God's like, oh, Peter said an awful lot of things, but let me give you the important parts. And he put them in there. And then he says, and after that, 3,000 people gave their life to Jesus Christ that day. Now listen, if you think the most important thing that happened on that day was that people spoke in other languages, you're missing the whole point of the whole feast. Because it was the feast of the first great harvest. And on that day, 3,000 people gave their life to Jesus. It was the feast of the first great harvest. And now the church is born. And as the church is born, wild things start to happen. For a period of time, the focus is here. And as the focus is here in Jerusalem, the church starts to expand 3,000 to 5,000. Priests are getting saved. Religious people are getting saved. All kinds of things are taking place. But sooner or later, things start to grow out of a family and they become more of a corporation. And the moment that happens, things dry up pretty quickly. And I often say to pastors, and I'm not the first person to say it or hear it, that the moment you feel like you're more of a CEO than a pastor, you're already in trouble. Well, for that in mind, uh, as a pastor. Well, with that in mind now, while all of that's happening, they're only preaching to Jewish people. They're not even going to preach to the, the Hellenists. There's already problems within people who are born Jewish, but live more of a Grecian lifestyle. I mean, there's all kinds of prejudice running deep here. And this would be like in some places that only white people are preaching to white people and not going to speak to someone of a different color. That's kind of the idea. And God never smiles on that. I can tell you, I prayed I've prayed from the beginning that God would give us a culturally diverse fellowship, so thank you for helping me with that. Because um, I can't do that on my own. Even we can adopt, I and mean, that's about as far as we can get. Well, with all of that in mind, all of the, while all of this is happening, God raises up an individual who, by the way, really, really has a problem with this Christian thing because he sees it as a Jewish cult. And seeing it as a Jewish cult, he, his, he feels like his ambition is to stomp out this plight, this parasite from the face and from the body of Judaism. Well, interesting, even in Satan's attack through all of this, God is so smart, he knows how to use Satan against himself. Nothing Satan does, God doesn't allow. Strange as that is, because God is so smart, he could even use Satan against Satan. I love that about God. And with that, the man starts to stomp out. Now, while that time is happening, while that sort of prejudice is happening, the prejudice, again, is against these women who are traditionally widows who are Jewish by birth. In other words, they bled Jewish, but they lived Greek, was the idea. Now, interesting, they hired a bunch of guys. or essence, they, they sat and listen, 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 this is so important. They sat among the fellowship and they said, now who among you has a good reputation? Who you know is full of the Holy Spirit? Guys, we can count on. Do you know what that means? That means the group of people that were here fellowshiped enough with each other, listen, they knew each other. That's what it meant. It wasn't like people came in, they did their duty, and they left. Because if it were the case, we would have no one to nominate. But we sat and they said, so listen, I, I mean, we have a problem here. We have women that need to be ministered to. They're widows. They have no sons. They have nobody to care for them. We're not in a society where they can work. Who, we need men to make sure that something can happen to that they get fed. Who, is it? Who do you trust? Who do you know is full of the Holy Spirit? Who do you know is full of wisdom? Who do you know has a great reputation? And all of a sudden, names start going up. Hey, you know, I know this guy, Stephen. Oh. And everyone's like, yeah, 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 Stephen. Duh. Hello, Stephen. Everyone knows Stephen should be one of those guys. And they're like, you know what, Bruno. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course, Bruno. And there's a guy that, by the way, the last of the seven that were listed was a guy that was a proselyte, which means he was born Greek but became Jewish as much as he could, from Antioch, which, by the way, is 120 miles north up here in Syria. Now, while all of this starts to happen, that guy, Stephen, the first one that's listed, by the way, becomes very profiled because he has such wisdom that people, when they try to argue with him, they just can't win. I used to pray for that kind of wisdom. But then I realized in the end of it all, winning every argument doesn't win a single soul. But it sure makes you feel good. And you walk out of the room with your guns smoking. Everyone's riddled full of holes. You feel like you've done your job. Oh, oh, oh. while well, everyone's quivering. But in the end of it all, no good thing has happened. Well, this Stephen's in one of those situations, although I wouldn't say in any way that's out of disobedience. And that was Saul's opportunity. That man who thinks he's going to stomp out that cult called The Way. That's what it was initially called. So what happens? He brings it as the people start to go and charge him. There's got to be a consenting Pharisee, somebody within the religious party that will allow you to perform the death penalty, which, by the way, it was illegal among the Jewish people since 7 AD when the guy who was in charge of the area, Caponius, before Pontius Pilate, removed the opportunity for them to do so. Now, they don't care. So they stoned the guy, and at that point, nothing happens. Now, the first Christian you kill, you look to see if lightning's going to come out. You look if something crazy going to happen. Nothing happens, and Saul's like, that's it. All bets are off. And he goes mental, just trying to kill anything that looks or smells that has a fish or a dove or anything that looks remotely Christian. A guy's got an acoustic guitar. Kill him. I don't even want to ask. And if he's got a dopey smile. Kill him. That's kind of the idea. Well, while that happens, he's, he is stomping out the people here. Now, he's not stomping out Christianity. He's stomping them out of Jerusalem so they will flee. Now, when God said, Jesus, when he said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and in, in the loose paraphrase, and don't just believe me, in Acts 1, he says, Look, at, I know you're chicken. I know that you're fearful, and you need power to get over yourself. When the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father, comes upon you, you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. And guess what happens? It had gone to Jerusalem, and by, if you will, by virtue of it being there, it became to Judea, but that was as far as you would go. You know what it took to get people to the places where they wouldn't go? Because Samaria, well, that was the place that was a natural, well, what do they call that, when two teams are naturally hating each other? Well, that was kind of the idea. They were so naturally at enmity with each other. So how do you get people to a place you wouldn't dare go? You have them flee. See, the thing about fleeing is you do not care where you're going. All that matters is that you're leaving where you are. Works out really well. And with that, then people flee to Samaria and a giant, um, that's amazing. Okay. It seems like every time I touch that, that shakes. I don't know how that works. Um, it's amazing. Right? All right. Well, sorry. So in Samaria, a beautiful revival takes place there. And as a revival takes place there, okay, we've gotten Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, but we haven't gotten to the ends of the earth. And all of a sudden, God starts packing up his film crew because things are getting dry and sterile up in, Jeru- or down in, Jeru- up in Jerusalem. Everything's kind of up on a hill there. So what happens? That area up here where that guy was, and maybe it wasn't a canner that was the proselyte from Antioch, flees back home. We don't know who was there first, but somebody goes up here and starts sharing Jesus with people, and a brand new thing starts. And God's like, pack up the camera crew. We're going where the action is. And imagine if you were a newscaster and you had your crew, and every place you went, nothing happened. How lame that. Well, what's happening today? Nothing. Cars are driving by. It was a lovely day today. Nothing really happened. I mean, sooner or later, you'd feel ripped off. You wouldn't watch the news anymore. Something has to happen. And that's what God's doing. It's the book of Acts, not the book of being. So with that, things are just being here, but they're acting here. So when that happens, get this, people have fled. And people have fled because this guy Saul was trying to kill him. Dragging him out and saying, I'm going to give you two choices. Deny this Jesus character. I'm going to kill you. you know? And with that, there are people who are dying. There are people that actually would say, you know what, arrest me if you have to. I'm not backing down on this Jesus character. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. He's my life. And I am not backing down. He hung blood and died for my sins. How could I refuse him now? Interesting. Because ultimately... What happens is Saul is on his way up to here and to here, which is where Damascus is. And on the way, that same guy encounters Jesus. And when it's there, he has a radically transforming moment. He meets that same Jesus he knew had died about a year or two before. And he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's funny because he thought he was trying to kill Christians and Jesus takes it personally. When somebody hammers you for your trust in Jesus, he takes it personally. And that's very comforting to me. You know what? He knows how to make a house call, even if it's in route. The man asks the two most important questions. Number one is, who are you, Lord? And the second is, what do you want me to do? The two questions every one of us are going to need to face Jesus with. So what happens? He's now blinded, and he heads up to the area of Damascus, which is over here. And then after a while, he tries out that newfound trust in Jesus Christ. Now, Saul was a good arguer, and that's what he tries. And he argues to death pretty much anyone around him, including himself almost. So he winds up here. They ship him down to here. He tries to get in. They try to kill him here too. And so they ship him back where he came from up here in Tarshish. And he disappears for a handful of years trying to be normal. Imagine the Paul of the Bible is trying to be normal. Now, you know what's so funny? We know Paul's story. And that's what makes it so strange, right? You don't know yours. Could you imagine how funny it looks to God if you actually saw the calling God placed on your life and you're trying to be normal? And the world's like, come on, stop being so weird. And you're like, you're right. I should act like everyone else. And God's like, no! I didn't make you like everyone else for a reason. If you could see what I have planned for you, the Lord would say, well, so there he is, assumedly learning how to make tents, by the way, for eight years here. And while that happens, this thing starts to erupt. Now, all of a sudden, headquarters now, which is down here, remember, they're just kind of being and not doing much. Go, wow, something new is happening, and we're not actually a part of it. We need to go and make sure it's real. Now, you know you're in trouble when you think your job is to protect your gig. And so with that, they send up a guy named Barnabas up here to go check on it. And he likes it so much, he basically never goes back. He's like, man, I just want to be where the party is with Jesus, and it ain't down there. And he looks and he sees this church. And here's the crazy part. Remember, this church started by people fleeing from that Saul guy. And he looks at this group of people and he says, you guys are awesome. You love Jesus, but you could really use a teacher. I know the guy. I'll be back in a bit. And off he disappears up to here to go ask people. There's no Google. There's not even 411. There's not even like asking, hello, excuse me, but can you tell me where Saul of Tarsus? There's none of that. At this point, he's got to go knock on doors. You know that guy Saul? I mean, he's in Tarsus. So how do you say Saul of Tarsus? If there's any Saul there, they're all Saul of Tarsus, right? Which Saul? I don't know. He's been here a few years now. You probably argued. God- oh, argue. Okay, I know what you're talking about, right? Now, eight years later, so what happens is he brings him back here. Now, what would that be like? Here we were. Some of us, by the way, saved our lives by denying Jesus. We, we, we compromised. We, we, we became jellyfish. We got weak. Others were like, kill me if you have to. And we fled. And now all of a sudden, Barnabas comes walking through the front you know, door. He's like, guys, guys, I've got the guy. And he comes walking in. And who comes walking in with him? The guy you fled from that tried to kill you. Now, and all of a sudden you think, are you kidding me? Really him? Him? Right? And all of a sudden, I wonder what it would be like for Paul to look and go, hmm, you didn't deny him. You didn't. Oh, ha, 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 ha. Right? I'm going to think about what Paul would know. about thought Saul at that point still. And he becomes their pastor for a year. Pastor Saul. And man, to think, now, one thing we're sure of is that guy was full-on. No matter what he was doing, he was full-on. That kind of guy will drive you crazy unless he's full-on for what you're full-on for. And if you're not full-on for anything, he will drive you even more mental. Well, with that in mind, what happens is ultimately they're fasting and praying here and the Holy Spirit says, I've got some specific guys here that I have specific work for beyond this. And out of trust for God's will, we let him go. There are other people that God had already raised up others to make sure that the issue was taken care of so the church wasn't left in a dire situation. And off Paul and Barnabas go now. And it is in that place now that Saul leaves and he becomes Paul. Interesting. Actually, here in front of a man named Sergius Paulus, first time we ever read him called Paul, for what it's worth. Paul means the Least. And he'll play on that often. He'll say, I was the least. He says, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, that Christ Jesus died to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that reason, me, the worst of sinners, Christ displayed his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. In other words, what Paul said is, Jesus saved me, so you couldn't possibly say Jesus wouldn't save you. So get over it. Well, with that in mind, he said, I'm the least, because I persecuted the church of Christ. I tried to destroy it. Well... After a ser- And so he goes on these series of tr- mission trips, but they're really not mission trips to him. They're just life. It isn't like, we're going to take a trip, and we'll come back here, and we'll check things. The first time he does kind of flip, he does this. He comes up here a bit, comes back down to Antioch, and he stays a good while, by the way. Second time, he kind of goes, and this time he goes further. He goes into Europe, and then with that, then he comes back, and he stays a little while. So he goes from staying a long time to a little while. By the third time, he never even goes back. Because, see, this isn't his home anymore. His home is, is any place where he's walking with the Lord. And he's just a man with wheels on his faith. Now, we've gotten to the point now, so you know. I know it's an extremely lengthy introduction, but I haven't been here a couple of weeks. I wanted to make sure we were back where we started. Okay. Now, with that in mind, what's happened is he has now been here in Ephesus. In Ephesus, by the way, he's been there for three years. And it's been interesting because every place where Paul has basically gone after he's gone here... They've basically tried to kill him. He preaches. People try to kill him. They preach. He preaches. People try to kill him. He flees because they're trying to kill him. They beat him. They tried to kill him. One, they might have killed him, and he flees. And somewhere down the line, he gets over here to Greece, and things just kind of mellow out. And all of a sudden, they're just—it's just you know—and and let's face it, if you like, kind of live your life where everyone's trying to kill you all the time, it's kind of a nice thing to have at least a little bit of time where people just aren't trying to kill you. That's kind of a no-brainer, right? And it's been pretty mellow. He's wound up back here in Ephesus, and he's been here. He's been for three years teaching at the school of Tyrannus. He's just been basically doing his job, as much as he knows, with no real threat. And we read, by the way, all of Asia has heard the word of God by this point. Without internet, without mobiles, without satellites, Without automobiles. And all of Asia, by the way, is an area that's all of this right here. They call that Asia Minor. It's not like China and Korea and such. And at this point now, God's like, you've done your job. Let's get you moving. What does it take for God to get you moving? For some, it's money or the lack thereof. For some, it's a relationship gone bad. For some, there's just no reason to stay. Well, God has a way of making Paul leave, and it usually involves almost dying. It's a good way to get Paul out of the place. So a riot rises, and the reason is business is bad in Ephesus. Why is it bad? Because all those guys selling all those little metal trinkets and idols, well, they're going broke because nobody's worshiping their little trinkets anymore. And they're like, oh my goodness, you won't believe this, guys. He calls sort of a union meeting with them, and he goes, you know, people are actually not believing these little trinkets are anything but little trinkets. And the people get so fired up about it, they all rush into a place that holds nearly 60,000 people, the theater in Ephesus, and they shout for two hours. Some of you remember that, Great as Diane of the Ephesians. It's just most of them didn't even know why they were there, which makes it even more fun. So you've got a crowd that's just flat out stupid. They're just like, yeah, he got there. Woo, woo, woo. They're, just, they're just there. And at that point, it's like, okay, it's time to leave. A clerk comes up and he goes, you guys, this meeting is illegal. There's not even a show here and the theater's packed. Go home. And they do. And at that point, and Paul's got friends that are officials by this point, friends in high places, and they're like, look it, don't go in there. And Paul wants to go in there. They're like, are you nuts? They want to kill you. But he's got friends in there. So what happens? They dismiss and then we get to verse 1. And believe it or not, we're actually at the text. And it says, after the uproar had ceased, that's your uproar. Paul called the disciples to himself. Disciples. Not believers. Not just people who called themselves saved. Not people who called themselves Christians. Disciples. Very big difference. Because God didn't just save you so you could say you're not going to hell. God wants to make you his student so that ultimately he can raise you up to become a servant. Well, with that in mind, he calls these guys to himself. And then it says he embraced them. Now, I want to remind you, it wasn't like this particular guy was a Teletubby. It wasn't like he was just cute and cuddly. "Ah, This was the guy that was killing people, dragging people out of their house cold-bloodedly, children in front of their mothers, mothers in front of their children, and getting to either blaspheme Jesus or having them arrested in the face of a husband or a wife, in the face of a child. And all of a sudden, he's gone from that to becoming a care bear. I mean, at this point now, it says he embraced them. And it's just such a radical thought that this guy was sort of rugged and, uh, and now he's like hugging all like, give me a hug and i just think how radical god could do this with a human being and can i just honestly say that's me i was i mean if i were any more prickly i'd make cactus look more huggable and now i tell you i, I just what the lord has done and then look at and if i don't know you i might hug you anyway so just get over it but you know <laughs> pastor one arm hug it's safe but but the reason I say that is he just calls these guys. And I just want you to see the relationship he's had. Remember, he's been there three years with these guys. I mean, think about it. That's about as long as Jesus was with most of his disciples. And he looks at these guys and he holds them. And he's going to have this amazing meeting with them later in tears. And they are going to weep. They're going to bawl their eyes out when Paul looks. Because he's looking now and he's realizing, this is pretty much probably the last time I'm going to see you. And that's a pretty weird thought. And he holds on to these guys. And this is he departed to go to Macedonia. Now, I want you to look at this. Paul is here. This is Macedonia. This is Greece or Achaia as we know it. Are you following me so far? If you're not that big on geography, it's okay. Hopefully it still makes sense. Paul, ultimately, his intent is to go down here to Jerusalem. And we'll realize that he's going to make clear within the next couple of chapters, the Holy Spirit has made it really clear to him. He's got a date with, with Jerusalem and ultimately a date with Rome. He's got to go here so he can go over here. <laughs> and so, you know, that's the way that God works in his economy sometimes. And so he's going to go over here. So why do this? Which, by the way, is a thousand extra miles. You know Why? Because churches were planted in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and in Athens, assumedly, and in Corinth. And he wants to make sure he can say goodbye to them and get one last chance to talk with them. And this amazes me. Um, Sincerely, this amazes me. And this is why. Because if I were in a car, would I be willing to do that? Go an extra thousand miles just to make sure that my friends were okay. Because you know what? He doesn't have a car the best route he can take is on the back of a cart pulled by an animal or two. It isn't even like he gets to look like a musketeer. This guy will travel months just to make sure you were, you're solid in Christ. I think, oh God, give us that kind of love for each other. Mm-hmm. Having just come back from America... I think we put 3,500 miles on the Jeep riding um, for the two weeks we were there. It's amazing how long 350 miles can be, for instance, between places to speak. But there's something and you know what? Then you get humbled because somebody drove even farther to see you because you've invested your life in Him and there's just something amazing about having fellowship with somebody that you're just to look at and go, I'm just so glad you're still walking with Jesus and you're charging with Jesus and it's you know, and it's it's all about who, who or what you carry in your heart. You know, it's 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 not like, hey, how is that work doing, or how is that title doing, or how is that charity doing? It's how's that person doing? How's your wife? And you realize in all of that, there is this powerful moment where you you see this guy travel an extra thousand miles, and it gets even crazier than that. Now it says here, and by the way, for what it's worth, he will travel over a thousand miles in the first two verses, to give you an idea. God gives you two verses, Paul gives you a thousand miles. After the uproar ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. When he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, by the way, interesting, because that will become a common theme in this chapter. If you think I went long, I want to thank Landon for going an hour and a half when I'm heard when I was gone. Um, I mean, neither of those will compare, by the way, if you read the rest of this chapter. There's a guy, Paul does an all-nighter. A guy falls out of a window, dies. I don't want to give you the whole story, but basically that's not the end of it. And in the end of it, Paul will look and go, "No, where was I? And he'll finish in the morning. I mean, he doesn't even get the hint when somebody dies. Now, with all of that, it says he encouraged them with many words, and he came to Greece, and he stayed three months in Greece. Now we're up here. We're here. So Paul, instead of just going straight across, which he could have done, which would have been much quicker, he goes all the way around, and the reason he does that is because he's, he just wants to take his time before he has to deal with Greek people. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, because there are people that he loves all the way around, and he really wants to love on those people. I'm going to get myself in trouble with that. It's culturally diverse. See what happens. So he stays three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, look at verse 3 with me. He decided to return through Macedonia. Now, don't miss this. Paul's over here. And what Paul wants to do is go like that, down to Jerusalem. I'm sorry, to Syria. So what he wants to do is he wants to do this and go back to Antioch. Are you guys with me on that? Now, that's what he wanted to do. But then he realized that there's some people plotting to kill him. Now, Paul could have said... God's going to protect me. It's cool. I know I'm going to make it because God's already made it clear I'm going to make it to Jerusalem and I'm going to make it to Rome. He's already made that clear. There's a problem though. And you know what the problem is? That the rest of these verses tell us about seven other people that are traveling with him. And you could just see Paul going, well, God told me I'm going to live through it, but he didn't say anything about Amina. He didn't say anything about Jeffrey. And listen to this. Out of love for those people, Paul takes another four to five hundred miles back up here to go this way instead, because he wants to make sure that his people will be safe. And I think, what an amazing guy. He's traveled over a thousand miles to see churches he loved, and then he's going to go back that way because he wants to make sure Amina doesn't die, or Lucas doesn't die, or Jeffrey doesn't die. He knows he's going to make it. And you can imagine, there'll be some people that'll be like, well, that's your job. You just need a better prayer life. I'm going to be fine. And could you imagine him pulling rank like that? You know, I'm in the Bible. You know, God's not done finishing the book of Acts. I've got many more chapters. There's got to be a sequel. There's all kinds of things happening. Good luck on you. But he doesn't do that. And you know, I've got to be honest. There are times where you get so caught up in just charging for Jesus, you forget why. See, being in love with Jesus is about people. It's not about Calvary Chapel. It's not about a building, it's not about an institution, it's not about a religion, it's about Jesus first, who's a person, let me remind you, and then because he died for people, he wants to give you that heart too. And man, if you were in love with Jesus, it's impossible not to love people. That's strange. But that's exactly what John taught us in 1 John when he said, how can you say you love God who you haven't seen, and not love his own who you have? Now understand It's so important, Jesus would say in John 13, this is the one thing that people are going to know you're my disciples by. Not believers, followers, or whatever kooky term where you can still think you hate the church, church. And there are churches out there like that. We don't even call ourselves Christians because we hate that word. We don't want to say religious because we hate that word. Although the word in its simplest means devoted. I want to be religious just to Jesus. I want to be more devoted. I mean, the whole world's religious to something. When you look at people that are out there trying to make sure that you recycle or they'll kill you, I mean... Don't tell me, I mean, it's like, let's just watch penguins die. Let's watch harp seals get beat. Nice religion you got there. Don't tell me about my religion for a minute. And the only reason I say that is, if I could be more devoted than they for a cause much more lasting. And I'm not saying that that's not important. I mean, we should care for this planet. But first and foremost, it's, it's, it's got an expiration date on it, whether you like it or not. And pardon me for saying, you are polishing the Titanic. On the other side of it, though, there is an eternity, and that you want to make sure that you're, you're solid on. And he just wants to make clear, this is about people. And boy, this was a guy, by the way, I remind you, who was arguing over a guy not that long ago because that guy fell and he didn't want to restore him the ministry. Because Barney, Barnabas was the one that said, we should take him. And he's like, no way. The work's too important. And I just love the fact he's done this. And then what happens is God then brings up seven people. And I'll try not to spend too much time on it, but I, here's, I really believe every person who given their life to Jesus is one or a recipe thereof of the following people. the question is, which one are you more like? Of the seven people, two of them will only be listed here uniquely. Of the other five, we'll actually have some fairly good press on. But it tells us here, by the way, again, in verse 3, that he decided to return through Macedonia. And again, I remind you, that's all the way up here through here. So instead of doing this, he did this, and then from here kind of sailed this way. And that's kind of the idea. Well, with that in mind, it says, then it says, that these people, verse four, Sopater of Berea. So everyone say Sopater. Nice of Berea accompanied him to Asia. Blah blah blah. Sopater. Who cares, right? Only place you're going to read about him is here. Possibly Sosipater, by the way, or Sosipater. Um, we'll fi- find, by the way, also in Romans sixteen twenty-one a different spelling, but just the same. Second guy, Aristarchus. 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 Come on, give me some. Mm, this is the Middle East. Aristarchus beautiful. Okay, you're just the same. Third one, Secundus, Secundus. of the Thessalonians. Gaius, Gaius. of Derby. Timothy, Timothy. That was a really tough one, right? Timothy. <laughs> right, precious. That's what his name means, precious. Te- now wipe the head of the person in front of you. And then Trophimus. Okay. Now, there you go. And they, these men, it says, going ahead, waited for us 135 miles. Beyond this, in Troas, we sailed from Philippi after the Days of Unleavened Bread. Ironic, because it's really not a place where there's a lot of Jewish people. And five days, joined them in Troas, where we stayed seven days, where the real fun's going to happen next week, and there. So here we go. Ready? Here's the first of them. The guy's name is Sapater. Sapater. Sodzo, or so, means safe or saved. Pater, does anyone know what the word pater means? It means it in several romantic languages. Pater, patras, means father. It's where we get words like padre from, for instance. His name means safe dad. That's what a name means. Or saved dad. And can I just dare say that within every group, within every healthy fellowship, there's at least a couple of these guys. Guys that are just father figures. Now, we're not talking about the guy that really exerts himself to dominate over you. But the kind of guy, to be honest that you just kind of feel like you're safe around. And that's one of the reasons I think that the, the enemy has worked so hard at finding really creepy guys to pretend. Because in every fellowship, there needs to be a handful of sopiters, The kind of guy, by the way, who just people will hang out with and they feel comfortable enough that they're barely known, but they're like, can I tell you what's going on in my life? And they'll actually say, yeah, sure. And they'll actually listen. They won't be like, hold on, tell me through this ear, I'm texting with this hand, I'll watch you with this eye, but I, oh, wait a minute, how do you spell that guy? I mean, not that, but I mean the kind of guy that's like, wow, okay, so what's going on? And they'll sit there and they'll listen. Now, what's interesting is, is that every person can assume, if they're not careful, that the pastor should just be all of these. And the sad part is, what that means is that this is a spectator sport for everybody else. Could you imagine if the general were the only one running to war? Good luck. Well, with that in mind, there's a soppiter. And that, by the way, and is that you? He's, again, say, Father. And I and I see as I look at fathers, they're guys that protect, that seek to provide for, and they invest in, so they try to produce, and they see raised up. They try to present guys. They, they're the kind of guy, and you need them in every fellowship, that actually look at guys and want to see them raised up to do something. And girls, too. They want to see you grow up. A real dad is, by the way, and praise God for moms. The moms are the ones, by the way, that if you skin your knee, you're going to run to mom because you can cry in front of mom. That's actually going to genuinely check to see whether it's cry-worthy. Let's be honest. And that's why when kids, you know this, like and you watch the little kids, right, they'll fall down and they'll look to see whether this is a crying moment or not. Oh, it's just dead. No crying here. This really isn't cry-worthy. And what happens is if you just have one, what happens is you can cry and it'll be the end of the world. And you know, you, you ever do like, ouch, just in case? You go like, ouch. Oh, yeah, that actually didn't really hurt. You know, just it should maybe, right? Maybe that should ow, you know. And then you realize, well, wait a minute. If it bruises, it was legitimate, right? You know. And it's like somewhere down there. And it's like praise God for people who are coaches. That by the way, it's like, look, I just want to see you raised up. I just want to see you. I, I, and by the way, here's a challenge to you, if you are such a person. Entrust people to the Lord, because as a father figure myself, and that's the first, by the way, father figure is this guy Sopater. Is that sometimes you're going to more than likely you're going to invest in people and they're going to turn out to be human? Dang it! Which, by the way, means that it's not going to be as much as a walk sometimes as it is a dance. It's two steps and that's one step and that's two. Come on, come on, you know. And it's like any father is going to be dragging their kids someplace they know is best. Their kids have yet they, they've never been there, so they don't know how cool it's going to be. But the dad's excited because he knows if he can get his kid there, they're going to love it. And they're dragging their heels and like, you have no idea how cool this is going to be. And it happens with me and the father all the time. And I, t- and, I, and I would tell you, I have faith in the Lord and that still happens. Are you such a person? My challenge again is entrust people to the Lord. Just because they do that does not mean God's going to ever give up on them. And even if they're not getting right in your timetable like you'd like, and all of a sudden you think that guy's starting to be raised up to ministry, what's he doing sleeping with that girl? And you just think, is oh, all of this time been for nothing? That's like, don't worry, I play for keeps. Let me remind you, you're just a representative here. That's our first. And again, what's his name? Oh my goodness, are you dead now? What is it? Thank you. Second one, Aristarchus. Aristarchus, by the way, this is what we know about the guy. Well, he was in, the, in chapter 10, by the way. Uh, he was one of Paul's traveling companions. And by the way, they've seized him just recently and knocked him into the theater. What we see is that this guy is always the kind of guy that he's right in the middle of the heat of it. As a matter of fact, in Colossians 4.10, he was the guy that when Paul would say, as he speaks, he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And it just seems like this poor guy, he's just always in the deep of it. And I can say that as where Sopater was our father figure, Aristarchus is our fall fellow. He's the fall guy. You know, there are some people, it's like they could try to take this, they could just put this thing somehow under their trousers and walk out no one would notice. Now you, on the other hand, you grabbed a stick of gum and the alarm went off in another store, right? You know, and there are just guys like that. They're just the fall fellow. But you know, here's the strange thing. My challenge to you, if you are such a person, is use that to glorify the Lord. And you say, How? Let me tell you one of the greatest lies of the enemy that seems to work. I'm sharing with this girl. and Let's just say her name is Wally. Okay, just, right, <laughs> Wally. Wally. All right, well, with, with Wally, I'm here with Wally, and this is what I'm telling her. Jesus takes imperfect people because he forgives, and he continues to forgive, and, he forg- and, and if I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Inside, the Spirit says, hallelujah, that's so true, Right? And she's in a Wally. Now, Emily knows the Lord, but Wally has yet to know the Lord. And then what happens is I have one of those days where I do something really ungodly in front of her. And then I say to myself, well, I couldn't possibly go in front of her again because I've so blown my, have you ever heard this? I've so blown my witness. And we'll use those terms, right? Funny because, listen, this is what I told her. Jesus takes imperfect people and he forgives And then guess what I just did? I just showed myself as an imperfect person that needs to be forgiven. I couldn't possibly go in front of her now. Do you see how ironic that is? And the enemy says, well, you better not, you don't go near Wally anymore. Let her go and start her anti-Christian hate group. You just go and find somebody else to start on. And instead of going, you know what? Wally, I'm really sorry, but I was really human, and what I did was very unlike what a Christian should be. I want you to know that. But I'm going to seek forgiveness from the Lord, and I trust because he takes imperfect people and he forgives. The one thing I wanted to show you, I'm going to have to demonstrate. Do you know how many people need to see that? Because they'll say, well, I tell you why I don't believe in that Christian anything because those Christians, I thought Christian, and this is what they did. But if that same Christian would have come up and just said, you know what, what I did was really wrong, I think every one of us would. I mean, even as Christians, wouldn't that impact us? Well, with that in mind, there's our second person. So are, are you the fall fellow? If you, if you are, use it to glorify. Now, don't fall on your own. You'll find enough, you'll give enough fodder with it. Just make sure that when those moments happen that you do something about it. And again, you might be a recipe of these. Third person, secundus. Now, secundus, by the way, you know, the natural thought is Latin, maybe it means second. But interesting, the word in its base sense simply means fortunate and favored. And you know what? People like this will drive some people nuts because they really are that. There are some people, it's like everything happens by sweat and lack of sleep and some caffeine and an endless amount of determination. And other people, it's like they cough and they get it. You know those kind of people? Drives them crazy, doesn't it? Well, If you'll pardon me for saying, maybe it just comes with having a surname like Holiday. It, it's sort of a part of our family blessing. In America... There was this place that Tay, Shantae, my oldest, really loved, and it was called Denny's. Now, Denny's is, in essence, it's like, imagine a Weatherspoons without the pub. It's just a greasy spoon, like everything else, that's just commercialized and franchised. And I don't know why she loved this place. She always loved to go there. In every Denny's, there is this machine. It's the claw machine, you know, where they take like plush toys that no one would ever want under any other circumstance. That's like avocado, things that are like the colors of 70s appliances. And they stuck it in there like this bear that looks like he got ketchup squirted on He looks like something you'd see on Halloween, right? And they're like out there, but man, if you could get it with a claw, it's a trophy now. Now it's cool, right? Right? And so it's like, for most people, it's like playing the slots. Mm, didn't get it. Mm, didn't get it, right? Uh, and they're just doing this all day. But there's always in every one of those, like the claw sensei. You know? The guy, it's like, he could just... And he just, and he like pulls out eight and they fall, you know, and everyone's like, I hate you, that kind of thing. (laughs) Strange as it is, every time that Tay and I were there, someone, and it was always different people. It was never the same person, would get one of those things and then they'd have no place to go with it. So they'd give it to my daughter. I kid you not. And then finally, one day we were sitting there and Shantae looked and she said, where's the gift? Another thing said, what are you talking about? She goes, that's why I come here. We get a gift. Every, it was like a happy meal. You just knew, like, there was going to be a gift. Strangely, the waitress doesn't even hear our conversation. And she just looks like, you're just such a cutie. Here's a piece of pie. I don't believe it. And it's just that. And the reason I say this, some people just have that kind of charm to it. Some of you can look around the room, and I'll try not to look at anyone specifically. You know, that's just what happens. They smile, and just things fall into their lap. My challenge to you, if you are a secundus, make sure that God always gets the glory for that favor. Because it's really easy to take credit for something that you don't you do not deserve. God says, you know, I could pull that favor anytime. And you're like, yeah, I sure did it good, and God's like, BAM, how you feel now? I'm like, oh not so secundus, I'm kind of thirdus now, you know? Are you a secundus? So, Sopater, father figure. Aristarchus, the fall fellow. Secundus, fortunate and favored. We're down to our last four. Gaius. Interesting. Gaius, according to Romans 12, or Romans sixteen twenty three, we read, Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church greets you. Hmm. By the way, it's interesting. It's one of the two people, according to 1 Corinthians 1, I think it's four, that Paul remembers baptizing, for what it's worth. And I could say, might I say that within every fellowship, there's a guy who's, or many, and they're, if you will, they're the fellowship and friendly one. And I look, and they're just the kind of person that's like, oh, let's just have it in my house. You know, now, usually one of my big challenges is if a guy or a gal is that make sure. if you're married, you make sure that your wife or your husband is in on all of your invitations, because that normally breeds a bit of problems. She's like, did this happen again? You know, and they're like, Hey, we're all happy to be here and you know why she's standing at the door, mm mm-hmm. How long are you gonna be here, right? <laughs> and you're thinking, Wow, I felt welcome until a moment ago. <laughs> and every church needs guys, don't they? I mean, every church needs this sop- needs sopeters. Every church, to be honest, needs aristarchus so that aristarchai, is that the plural? So that, you know, in the end of it all, somebody else gets the blame <laughs> instead of you. You know, everyone needs a secundus so you can check whether or not you're actually subject to envy. And you know what? All this is is a family, like what God wants to do here. Don't you dare think for a moment what church is is just a place where you go and listen to something. This is a place where God actually gets to test you out on others. How exciting is that? Last three. Timothy. What do we know about him? Paul calls him my son in the faith. It's first Timothy one two, one eight as well, or one eighteen. And one thing I recognize about Timothy, he's two things. First of all, he's fearful. You read the Timothy letters, and that guy's just freaking out. And Paul says, stir up your gifts, man. Stop it. Preach the word in season and out season. Do the work of an evangelist. Do you know why he has to say that stuff? Because he's not doing it. Who else would Paul say, look, God has not given you the spirit of fear. Again, to fear. To bondage. Why do you think he has to say that? It's like, that's not the new spirit, bro. You're fearful. Everyone is to some degree. Bravery is not not having fear. It's what you do with it. Handing it over to the Lord is the difference between bravery and coward. Succumbing to it is what a coward does. But the other thing is, he's the future. When Paul looks at Timothy, he looks at a person and he says, A couple years from now, where are you going to be? A couple years from now, where are you going to be? Because he looks at him and when he sees the future, which tells me, by the way, that Paul is a sopiter as well to some degree he wants to see them raised up. He sees these guys and he says, look, it, I, want to, I, I do not want to see you where you are today. Good for where you are today, but if you're this way two years from now, I'm either failing you or you're failing you because you need to be more. I need to be different than I am right now. You should see me grow in the next couple years as well. And I love Timothy's. And by the way, those guys that are the future and realize that God wants to use them are usually the guys most apt to freak out over it. Here's the scary part. I believe that God has a plan for every one of you to make you that way. I honestly, genuinely believe that God wants to transform this country. And I don't think that God is limited to one individual. And I think He would just get tickled to use us. Because to be honest, if you look around at how diverse we are, God's going to have to get the glory for it if it happens here. And that's what He loves. Is that you? Fearful but the future. Last two. Take a kiss. Tychicus, by the way, let me read you a few verses, because this guy, I don't know if you know, gets a fair share of press. In Ephesians 6.21, but that you may know the affairs of what I'm doing, affairs doesn't mean the flings Paul's having, nothing like that. What that means is, what's happening? What's up? Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister of the Lord, will make known these things to you. Colossians 4.7, Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister and fellow servant on the Lord, will tell you the news about me. Second Timothy 4.12, Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. Titus 3.12. When I send Artemis to you or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at once. In the Col- for I decided to win there in the and, and here's the thing about this guy. is where we have, sort of if you will, we have the father figure, the fall fellow, the fortunate and favored, the friendly and fellowshipping, the fearful future. This guy is the faithfully flung. It's simple. No matter where this guy goes, he's already sitting in the slingshot just ready for you to let it go. And there's always a guy, and you pray, you pray for a thousand taikai like this. You know, guys that are just, send me, man, because he's going to be faithful, and you know it. And whether, you know, and it's the guy that's sort of like, you know what, we happen to not have this. And they're like, well, I'll take care of that. What do you need, more chairs? We'll set them up. What is it? Okay, if that's what it is, send me. Let's do it. And I love guys like this, but they're by the way no one more important than any of the others. Sometimes, to be honest, for a person who's administrating, they just tend to be the person that's your key person at the time in the moment you need it. But a guy like this, it's like look at in Ephesus, he's like the one guy I know I can send there to make sure you know what's happening here. I'm going to send that guy because I know he'll do the job. He'll be faithful, and he just says, "Send me." When I'm in you know, Colossians, it's like, look at, I'm going to send him to you because I really know. Timothy, I'm going to send him to you because the last letter I'm going to write, that's an important letter. Now understand, Paul didn't write a hundred letters. When it's like, when Paul wrote Colossians, he didn't write a hundred times and say, well, if 99 of these get lost, at least we'll have one that remains. Imagine, imagine if, I mean, I'm sure that Paul must not have known that he was writing the Bible at the moment, but could you imagine if you realize that if this copy gets lost, bro, we're going to have something missing from the Bible. Be warmed and filled. Go to Ephesus. Now think about that for a second. I mean, and you're talking about traveling a thousand miles in some cases. And you're going to trust a guy with that. What an amazing kind of guy that is. That, that cannot be. And understand, this isn't a time when you can text to get your details later. It's the kind of guy that when you have to give the details, he has to listen to every one of them the first time because it's the only time he's going to be able to get them. And here's my challenge for you if you're such a Taika kiss, by the way. is Listen, 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 because we're almost done here. Just because you're not doing something doesn't mean God is. Or God isn't, however you want to put that. And that becomes a problem often with guys that are like this, that are doers. Sometimes what will happen is it's like, listen, if you're not in practice, you're in prep. And so if God's preparing you at this very moment, understand, that doesn't mean he's not using you. He's preparing you for another thing. When I was out on the mission field a lot, there was a time, by the way, that God knew that the next place I was going to go was extremely corrosive to what I ate. Strangely enough, God's kept me, nailed me, and left me in the California for a period of time. And I thought, man, come on, I'm ready. I'm ready for that next thing. And God's like, look it, you don't know it, but I need to put another lining on your stomach before the next place you go. I couldn't see that. But God knew what he was doing. And God knows how to hold you in place. And just because He holds you in place does not mean that He's not doing something. And you're going, but God, why? Where is that? And God's like, look at, I know what I'm doing. You need to trust me. Well, with that in mind, are you such a person? The last of them, Trophimus. Interesting. Trophimus, we'll read, by the way, for what it's worth, in Acts 21. That this was the guy that Paul would bring into the temple, well, they thought he was because he was a Gentile and he knew that much, and that's where the riot starts when he gets to Jerusalem, is because they're like Paul brought a Gentile into the temple, which was illegal. The guy never even made it in there that we're ever aware of. But what the thing you just kind of find about this guy is that he's just kind of always creating. He's sort of right at the source of a crazy moment. He's also, by the way, that was left sick according to Second Timothy four twenty. And might I just say he was kind of a firefinder. He's the kind of guy that kind of gets the thing started. Now, sometimes that's not good. A guy that splits an atom can be a great thing if he directs it. And in my advice, by the way, if you're such a person, is careful where you aim that thing. Because if you're the kind of person that, man, when you do something, it explodes open on you, you better be really careful where you're aiming it. You can split an atom and heat a thousand homes, or you can split an atom and kill a thousand people. It all depends on what you do with it. And there are some people, by the way, it just seems like when they do something, radical things happen. Well, the key on all of that is, then let God use that. But you better be careful where you aim that thing. Because if you don't aim it in the right place, you'll either hurt someone else or yourself. And the, and the church is riddled with mass units of people, by the way, that, by the way, all there was was a person that was a Trophimus. They were just careless where they aimed themselves. And part of the, the hard part is to let God actually say, all right, Lord, I'm going to let you direct me the way you want to. Now, look at we've covered so much material, and we're only into verses 5 and 6 here. But I really want to just say, listen, regardless of who you are, he's got a place in the body for you. And I guarantee you it's not latent. And please hear me. You either come to be a part of the body, which means you're going to contribute to the body in some manner, or you're going to just suck from the body. And that's called a parasite, and God doesn't intend for any believer to be that. Know that. The problem is, is the world around us is a consumer world. And if we draw from that, that will say, be a, be a parasite. They'll just say, it's smart. Because what you do is you get to suck all day, and then you don't give anything. And by the way, I don't want to be in a place where it's like, come to our church, because we suck. That's not where I want us to be. Where I, want, where I know Christ wants us to be are people that say, look it. And you don't even have to take a survey or all that. All I ask you to do is say, Lord, here I am. Use me. And you might be amazed at the fact that he actually will. But part of that is not being in a hurry to get and go. Part of it is because if you watch, the vast majority of gifts that God develops are gifts that are used on people. So if you hide in a corner by yourself, pretty likely you're not going to see a lot of the spiritual gifts God's given you. Now, what if you're brand new in the faith? Praise the Lord. I've watched people grow in the faith, new in the faith, that demonstrate things that people 40 years in their faith haven't because, to be honest, they've been too busy isolating themselves and thinking of themselves as a consumer. God never intended that. In our text here, Paul, by the way, he's looking, and I I remind you, he just traveled over 1,500 miles by the time this was done just to make sure that you were okay. Whether you were traveling with him, or whether you were someplace he went to go visit to make sure, hey, Juan, how are you doing? You walk okay? Hey, how's your family? How are things going? Are you reading the Bible? Are you praying? I'm not just talking about some tick a box. I'm talking about is there an intimacy developed? Those are the kind of things that Paul wants to, because he wants to see a church, by the way, where you trust that the guys are in leadership are actually leading the people. And there's something really cool about that. I got to see guys, by the way, that I just sat and discipled several years ago that were pastors in places. It's so bizarre for me to see that. And some of them, to be honest, I'm like, wow, I don't know where you got all that, but that stuff's amazing. He's like, bro, that came from one of your tapes. I'm like, oh, okay, well, anyways. But I mean, and, and I'm not saying that in any way to pat myself on the back. All I'm saying is that there's this place where you recognize where you're just investing a little bit. It's like, you know, you put the seed in. You don't, you know, you planted a seed. God grows a tree. Sometimes then that seed produces nuts, and then it grows a forest. And all you did was you planted a seed. I, mean, I just want to encourage you, be planted. According to scripture, it says in Psalm 92:13, he was planted in the house of the Lord will flourish in the courts of our God. And God really wants you to flourish. Which, by the way, if you think that the best that God has to give you is lots of money, you've just robbed God. Because people want money to have what you have, but money can't get. Peace, power, joy... Love, patience, goodness, patience, you know all the things. You know love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The things are the fruit of the spirit. I mean, you think of all those things? It's like people would kill for those things. People do kill for those things. And God's like, look at I, all you have to do is surrender to me, and I will blossom those things in your life. And here, look at as we go to prayer for whoever you are, the faithful. You know, whether you're the father figure, the fall fellow, whether you're the favored whether you are, you know, just the person that is sort of faithfully flung, whether you're the fire starter, whoever you are, God wants to use you. And the more diverse, the better. And I'm not saying that in regards to sin. This is what I've learned, that what God said was that we are supposed to be intolerant to sin and tolerant to people's personality. And what we've done is the opposite. We'll say, well, we'll tolerate sin because then we look cool for it, but I hate that person because they irritate me. God's like, God put that person in your life to show you how you can get over yourself when they irritate you. Because you know what happens when an unbeliever walks into a room and sees a person and goes, well, that guy's irritable, or irritating, and they look and go, that guy drives me nuts. And they see other people actually being kind to them. And they look and they say, wow, this place really does love beyond what the world does. It's easy to be nice to a nicer person. If you've not accepted this gift of Jesus Christ, that's where this starts. He died on a cross to forgive you of your sins. And again, he takes imperfect people and he's in the business of forgiveness to radically transform you. If you have accepted him, my prayer is we would step forward and say, not here, I'm not asking you to come here and give anything, but I'm asking you to look up and give there. And what I'm asking is to say, "Look at Lord, take me up a level in my walk. Whatever that is, take me up a level. Give me a hunger for your word. Give me a love for fellowship. Because God told us we were supposed to. Give me a genuine intimacy in prayer. Well, without that, let's, well, let's, let's pray and let's see what God does. Will you pray with me, please? God, thank you so much for this beautiful text. I mean, again, I think that we would have started this thing with blah, 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 blah. Guys that we don't know, maybe we'll meet them someday. And look at what you've done. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us back to Acts. Thank you, Lord, that that one thing we can look at at the end of the book is it just doesn't seem to have any form of conclusion. And I think part of the reason is is because I think you're still writing this book. And I'm so excited to think, Lord, that I could be a part of it or we could be a part of it, this could be a part of it. And so, God, I just pray right now for whether it's the person who's just quick to silently serve or the person who's quick to jump into another person's life, Quick to teach, or to listen, or admonish, or to father, but in the proper manners. To charge, warn, and exhort, as we see in Thessalonians, as a father does his children. For those that seem like they can't get away with anything, Lord, you've told us, by the way, you've, in the Timothy letters, that there are some people's works are evident, and they they just they get immediately nailed, and there are others who follow after preceding them to judgment, some, some, that, but none of them will be hidden. So, Lord, even for the person that seems like they're getting away with it while we are not, Lord, I just pray that that there would be repentance in all of our hearts, Lord, that we would not like anything that tears us down or hurts us. I pray for those, Lord, that, that Lord just seem to be getting so much favor You've told us, Lord, when one part of the body is favored that the whole body rejoices. Make us such people that we wouldn't be busy envying what another person has. But that we could actually think more corporately and be the family you intended, Lord. Where when we gather like this, it would be to see you move profoundly among us. That you would use each of us. That we come here for your deployment. And not just simply for our enjoyment. So keep us, Lord, from simply being entertained, but rather equip us. Keep us from simply being placated, but rather, Lord, purpose us. And in that, Lord, make us the servants you intend. And Lord, even within the sound of this voice right now, if there be any who have not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, show them right now they are the intentional creation of a God who loves them, who recognizes their faults, but in infinite love for them sent his own son Jesus to die on the cross so that all the guilt could be paid for and yet the person could be loved into fellowship. But thank you for being a gentleman. And in that, though you give us the option, you don't force us. So even right now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, convict and draw. And if the Lord really has died for you to pay for all of your crimes, intended, thought, acted upon, and then in that rose again to prove that the price was paid in full, And all at this point He asks for you to do is to give Him permission to love you, cleanse you, and make you a new creation and reinvent you. Why would you say no to that? So I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end of it all, if you tonight agree, I simply ask for you to say at the end a confident Amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that prayer be my prayer. Let those words be my words. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God, I come to you faulty. But you accept faulty people. I come to you guilty because I've done wrong things, thought and felt and intended wrong things. But you take in wrong people, guilty people. And you forgive You don't leave the crime unpunished because you are a just God. But in your infinite love, you chose the punishment upon yourself so that I would not have to pay the brunt or the penalty for that matter of my crimes. And you therefore fully paid it on the cross that none of what I've done, thought, felt, or intended, none of it goes without being punished. And to prove that was true, your son rose from the dead on the third day, just like you promised. And so I say yes to the gift of Jesus. If you really want to forgive me, if you really want to cleanse me, if you really want to purify me and make me right with you, then I say yes. Confessing Jesus as my payment, as my pardon, as my ransom, and as my king. I surrender my life to you now and ask you to reinvent it in whatever way brings you the greatest pleasure. As I commit this to you now, I am yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.